Hey guys, this is Vanessa Dyer, and I'm the Charlotte, North Carolina-based lifestyle blogger behind thecheekybean.com. With several successful years as a business owner, a first-time mom, and a deep passion for health and wellness, I'm here to share my honest, unfiltered advice on all things motherhood, relationships, travel, and more. So grab a coffee and join the conversation. This is the Cheeky Bean Podcast. So then when I developed Hashimoto's, I was like, okay, this is kind of my side project, figuring out myself. But then I realized it was such a great need for so many other people and that I wasn't going to really learn that in med school. Yeah. So that's where I was like, I need to go a different route. And so then I started working in master's in nutrition. Welcome back, everybody. That clip was from our guest of the show today, Raya Pachin. Raya is a functional nutritionist and certified leap dietitian who specializes in GI issues, autoimmune disease, stubborn weight loss, food sensitivities, and chronic inflammation. I absolutely love talking to Raya in this episode. I actually worked with her in 2019 prior to getting pregnant for hormone imbalance and gut health issues. So for those of you who might be newer here, I'll give you the backstory on how I actually ended up finding her. I felt like I was doing everything right. I was working out six days a week. I was tracking my macros. I was eating a low carb, high protein diet, barely any added sugars. And I reduced my caffeine intake, which you all know I love my coffee, so that was not easy to do. But I could not move the needle in terms of fitness goals. I constantly looked and felt bloated. My chin was breaking out regularly. I was not sleeping good. And I just had that gut feeling, no pun intended, that something else was going on. I listened to a lot of podcasts with functional medicine doctors, so I started researching who I could talk to about these issues in our area Ended up posting in a Facebook group asking for recommendations, and Raya was mentioned no less than 20 times on that thread. So her and I ran blood work, saliva tests, a stool sample, which, fun fact, is the most unpleasant test of them all, and I also ended up getting a colonoscopy at 28 years old. From there, her and I created a protocol to improve the gut function and level out any imbalances that we found. The gut affects literally everything. So on this episode, we talk about the importance of running these additional tests, things you can do to improve your lifestyle or overall health, inflammation, clean living, and so much more. With that, let's welcome Raya Pachin to the Cheeky Bean Podcast. Raya, welcome. I'm so happy you're here today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about this conversation. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. I know. Um, all right. Why is the gut so important and why do you think that people are experiencing so many issues? Well, we've known for a pretty long time from people, even like Hippocrates a long, long time ago, who some have coined the father of medicine, that all disease begins in the gut. And that is because the gut is the central hub of communication for the rest of the body. So what goes into the gut is almost like instructions for the rest of the body. So there's this ripple effect that we see from our gut and out through other body systems because they're all interconnected. So it's a pretty big deal. Yeah. And when we look at what's going into our bodies via the gut nowadays, think of things like more processed food, pesticides, alcohol, caffeine, prescription medications, combined with high levels of stress. There's an increasing number of toxins and inflammation provoking compounds that don't just stay in the gut or get excreted. So inflammation builds up over time and symptoms develop. I like to use the analogy of we all carry around a bucket of inflammation, which our body was designed to handle. Some amount of inflammation isn't bad, but at some point, if that bucket begins to overflow, that's when we begin to experience symptoms. Okay. Yeah. So 
my personal story obviously kind of started there was I was feeling bloated all the time and I had a ton of inflammation and I could not figure out what was going on. I felt like I was doing everything right in terms of working out and eating healthy and counting my macros and reading labels and stuff. But I feel like that comment or that problem is so common these days. Do you think that it's mainly because of food? Is that where it starts? I think it's a mix of just the unprecedented amount of stress that most people carry. And I think that's become normalized too. It's almost like a badge of honor to just be super busy and be stressed out almost. Yeah. And just be working all the time, be on the go all the time. And then combined with like a declining quality of food, increased prescription use. I mean, I think 80% of the world or at least our country is on at least one prescription. 50% are on two or more. So I think it's just all of those things mixed together. And then the declining quality of like agriculture, um, you know, we just don't have the same value on like farming methods that we used to. And so it's just more about industrialization. So it's just easier for chemicals to sneak into our food. And there's not really a lot of um, kind of quality checks on that. So I think it's really just a combination of that increasing, you know, inflammatory kind of cascade for most people and just the things we're putting in our bodies are Mm -hmm. are maybe lower quality combined with all this increased stress. I think that's probably where it comes from. And antibiotics are like ubiquitous. It's just people don't even think it's a big deal anymore. And so many kids have had them when they're born, you know, they give you antibiotics during delivery. And a lot of women don't even know that they have to really think back. Like, I don't know. Did I have, that's a big deal. If yeah, you have antibiotics is. intravenous when you're delivering a baby, yeah. it's a huge deal. And a lot of people just aren't aware of it. So I think it's just all, I, I don't usually think it's one thing ever. I think it's always just this perfect storm where, where that causes most of us to feel symptoms because our body can handle some amount. It just mm-hmm. can't handle like so much all the time. Yeah. It hits like a breaking point yeah, basically. Yeah, exactly. Why do you think that most general practitioners don't look into this? I love this question. So I don't know that I have a great answer to it, honestly. <laughs> um, I will tell you a little bit really quick of my story. Um, my original track was med school and that's what I thought that I was going to do and do kind of like osteopathic medicine. I knew I wanted to do something to incorporate like natural methods mm-hmm. or like more holistic, but I really loved science and medicine. But then what I quickly found out, unfortunately, after I had already gone through the hard work of being accepted and like planning my whole life around going to med school was that really, they literally told me what you'll be learning. Because I asked about nutrition and they're like, oh, you get like four hours of nutrition education. And I was like, what? (laughs) And then they said, "Um, you'll really be learning how to match medications to symptoms. And I was like, you know, that hallway getting longer moment where I was just like, what did I sign up for? So I really think I say all that to say, I really think some of it's just the training. Like that's just not how some practitioners are taught. If you're not in like a functional or like integrative type of program. Um, and then I think it, yeah, I think it's just not the model. And then I do think sometimes the insurance model, most traditional physicians are, I don't want to say trapped, but they're kind of used to this like insurance model and it doesn't Mm -hmm. give them a lot of latitude in terms of what they want to do. Okay. It's sort of like they have to follow like a flow chart and say like, if this, then this, and only if this criteria is met, then we can run this other test or then we can do this. So it's literally maddening. I mean, I went through it as a patient too. I have Hashimoto's and I went through all of that when I moved here and even before that. 
Um, and it's literally maddening, but I think it's just kind of the way that the system was set up and it's just been very, very slow, unfortunately, to evolve, to include more, more testing and more of like an interconnected approach to like the fact that obviously our body parts are connected and so maybe they influence each other. Okay. But I think the system just isn't set up that way, unfortunately. Yeah, I I noticed that because prior to coming to you, I did go to my general practitioner and express mm-hmm. my concerns and they were like, well, like let's give it a little bit more time before we try to go the route of testing these things because mm-hmm. I kept saying, I really think I need to test my hormones. Mm-hmm. They're like, mm, they, it seemed like they were really reluctant to listen to what I was saying, and that's really what fueled my fire to search for somebody like you. Yeah. But it's unfortunate because most, like, the the tests aren't covered by insurance. Yeah. So if your general practitioner was able to do that, it would be a lot more feasible, I think, for a lot yeah. of people because Absolutely. those tests are expensive. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it would completely change healthcare to yeah. prevent, you know, prevention is is the key it's just not the way we're set up so yeah yeah, it's a little bit of a fight still you have to advocate for yourself Mm -hmm. and like know what to ask for and sometimes go other routes you know I had to do the same thing for myself as well that's crazy yeah is that kind of what fueled your passion for going down this route definitely I you know I struggled a lot even in like my early 20s um just dealt with things that like in your 20s you shouldn't really have to deal with and that was when I had my first kind of flare of Hashimoto's where I kind of was diagnosed. And then I've kind of had like two other flares since then. But, um, but even before that I dealt with some things, my mom dealt with, um, undiagnosed gluten sensitivity, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which of course now is like a documented thing. Mm -hmm. But I grew up with watching her just be sick all the time and almost had like digestive, but also like hay fever. And she just like, didn't know why. And she wasn't allergic to anything. And the whole time it was gluten. And so, yeah, so I kind of watched her work through that. And then all of my family has autoimmune disease. So everybody just always dealt with like different like joint pain or Mm -hmm. skin rashes or just weird, you know, kind of weird like psoriasis or weird things. And so, um, yeah. So then when I developed Hashimoto's, I was like, okay, this is kind of my side project figuring out myself. But then I realized it was such a great need for so many other people And that I wasn't going to really learn that in med school. Yeah. So that's where I was like, I need to go a different route. And so then I started working in master's in nutrition to kind of Okay. I was about to ask, did you, did you sidebar med school and go a different route? Yeah, I totally did. I literally dropped out and it's like the best, you know, it's like the, the, probably the worst thing I should be saying right now, but, (laughs) but I had no regrets at all. I mean, it was just not, it was not going to give me the education that I wanted for like a hundred or $200,000. It's just Mm -hmm. not worth it. Yeah. No. Um, so I went the nutrition route instead and, um, I'm in integrative functional medicine training now. I'm still getting my certification. Um, but it's basically, you know, you can get to that route, the same, the same place, just from a different direction. So now it's just, coming out from more of a nutritional perspective, which I think has been really more fulfilling anyway. So it's been good. That's awesome. Yeah. You're good yeah. at it. That's well, for sure. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, I know you mentioned that most people don't know what tests to ask for. Yeah. So what tests do you think that most people should run outside of what the general practitioner does and how often should they run these? Yeah, great question. So I would say at the very least, um, definitely ask for vitamin D. Okay. I think it's really cheap to run it. It's cheap to supplement it if you need a supplement. 
And there's really, most physicians will comply if you ask for help getting that tested. It's a okay. really important nutritional factor. Most of the world is deficient. There's like hundreds or thousands of studies on the importance of vitamin D. Even in these last two years, you know, with the virus, there's um, so much new research on vitamin D and how important it is to support our immune system, yeah. whether it's for kids, whether it's for adults. Um, really, really easy to get tested and important. So even just once a year, if you can do that, what I really wish is that insurance would approve a full micronutrient panel. And I don't remember if we did that with you, but it's a great, like very baseline preventative check for anyone that looks at all your amino acids, all your fatty acids, all your um, vitamins and minerals, including vitamin D. It looks at them in your blood and also in your cells, which is pretty cool. So it cool. Know, you know if your body's actually using it, not if it's just sitting there floating around. Okay. So I love that test, but of course that's an out of insurance type of uh, situation. Um, I wish though that insurance would approve that. Yeah. That would be so helpful if people just had that, like even every two years, it would be so great to see. Cause if you knew like, oh, I'm low in selenium or I'm low in vitamin D, you could prevent so many worsening issues. Yeah. Um, but at the very least, I would say like vitamin D, if you're in a situation where you're on like a long-term prescription, then sometimes things like B12, folate, um, zinc, um, even sometimes iron can be helpful or like for the average woman who just has like fatigue and they don't know why th that can be a good starting point before we jump to hormones. Yeah. Um, because micronutrient deficiencies in and of themselves could cause that issue or it could be related to like underlying gut and absorption issues. Okay. And B vitamins and zinc and iron are commonly depleted by various, um, prescription medications. Okay. So like birth control, like acid blockers, um, thyroid medication. So those are just some typical ones that I see. Um, I think some of the most probably commonly prescribed uh, medications. So those are, those are helpful. And then like, if there are issues related to hormones like PMS or acne or really heavy or irregular periods, that's where hormones can be helpful. Yeah. And some GYN sometimes are a little more helpful. I feel like in getting labs drawn. Mm -hmm. So like they'll usually check your vitamin D sometimes without asking, um, but sometimes they check different hormones. So just asking for like estradiol, progesterone, testosterone, those can be helpful to assess issues with like libido or like period type issues. Okay. What is a, or what is the, I guess, cost associated with some of these tests out of pocket? So like a full micronutrient panel, it depends on what vendor you use. The one that I use one of two. And they're usually around like, of course, everybody's prices just went up. It's like yeah. around like 350 or 400. It's a lot, okay. but it, they test like, I think it's 55 markers. So okay. it's kind of a lot. If you went to the doctor and tried to have that done, it would easily be twice that easily. Okay. So the panel is worth it if you're going to, if you want to do everything. Yeah. Um, but like vitamin D by itself is like $15, you know, okay. it's pretty inexpensive. Hormones are probably going to be... 20 to 30 dollars a piece so okay. i mean you could easily spend 100 150 dollars and get a pretty decent panel of just kind of spot checking you know the yeah. basics do you recommend that people test especially hormones after having a baby um i would say if you have symptoms i mean okay. definitely don't guess you know there's a lot of there's a lot of promoting supplements and products and, and maybe just guessing, or if you go to the GYN, traditional GYN, they're going to say, go on birth control to yeah. fix all your hormone problems, no yes. matter what they are, no matter Always. anything else in your history. I know. And, um, that is, again, it's just masking a symptom. It's not fixing anything. Right. So at any point, whether you get off of it at menopause 
or at the, you know before or after your next baby, it you're still gonna have to deal with where you left off before. Um, so I think that you know you can you can kind of go either way, but working on um, even just taking little snapshots, I think, can be helpful and um, just advocating for what you feel like you need. But you don't, you know, it's going to take a while to come out of that inflammatory state after having a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, just like with working out, like if you jump into it really soon, it, it can sometimes sabotage those weight loss efforts. Yeah. So give yourself a little time, especially if you're breastfeeding. But, um, you know, you can take some time. And then after when you're ready and when you're back to cycling normally, then if things start to feel like, okay, this isn't how I remember it or this isn't right, then that's where testing, I think, can be helpful. A lot of women will have low progesterone that doesn't okay. bounce back up. So yes. that is really common. But you have to kind of wait until you're out of that postpartum phase just to even know what normal is again, right? At least be yeah. cycling because you won't know if you're ovulating or producing progesterone until you know, you're know you cycling again. Okay. What are some of the key markers, I guess, if you do have low progesterone? What, what would be a telltale sign of that? Um, like symptom wise? Yes. So symptoms of hormonal imbalance, which could be, it, it's really a, a mix. It could be low progesterone, elevated estrogen, mm-hmm. or both. Yeah. So it, it can be different or even just slow metabolism of estrogen. Um, it doesn't even mean your level has to be high. But if that ratio is off, typical symptoms are anything period related. So like PMS, breast tenderness, heavy periods, clotting irregular periods, anything menstrual related, cramps, um, moodiness, um, anxiety, difficulty sleeping. (laughs) So progesterone is kind of that like peace, love, chill hormone that (laughs) kind of like soothes everything, calms everything, balances everything. So when it's low or it's not high enough to compete with that really strong estrogen, Mm -hmm. that's where, you know, you start to feel those symptoms of imbalance. Okay. Yeah. And I think when I came to see you, I had low progesterone and mm-hmm. high estrogen and I would like break out constantly yeah. on my chin. Yeah. And I definitely had the up and down mood swings that came with, yeah. you know, your cycle. And, but the chin breaking out was, I think my thing that I was like, mm-hmm. something is not right. I'm, it's not because I don't have a good skincare regimen, yeah. you yeah. know? Yeah. And if I didn't say that, yeah, acne is another big one that like low progesterone or high estrogen or both it can definitely trigger, especially if you're noticing that it's cyclical, like that week before your period, yeah. you know, right. Or a few days leading up to that's, that's typically a telltale sign. Okay. Yeah. And then I know we talked about inflammation. What are some of the key markers or symptoms for inflammation? Yeah. So really any symptom of imbalance is inflammation, right? Okay. Inflammation is just that buildup over time. Um, like when the, the bucket runs over, like I mentioned, so from a blood work or a lab perspective, it sort of depends on what you're looking for. So I'll throw out some some examples. So what a traditional doctor might check for like what I would call systemic inflammation. So like we don't really know where it's coming from, mm-hmm. but it's like causing inflammation all over is um, CRP, C-reactive protein is a common one. Homocysteine is another one that I would say you get more into like cardiology where they check those because it can predict, you know, cardiovascular, like poor cardiovascular outcomes or risks. But those are common markers. And then, of course, there's like various autoimmune markers if you're looking for something like that. I would also argue that lab values that are elevated, such as like insulin, DHEA, cortisol, thyroid antibodies. I mean, those are all like excess inflammation, right? It just depends on like where you think it's coming from and like what type of symptoms you're having as to how you drill down into like which 
particular data set is going to be the most helpful. Okay. And then if we talk about like stool testing, which of course I do a lot for GI symptoms, there's dozens of inflammatory markers um, that can show up in the stool well before they show up in blood or in a colonoscopy. So that's also a great tool. And there's, like I said, there's literally dozens of markers. They all have like funky weird names, but they're just, you know, they're pretty well researched um, and they're, they're correlated. We can't say that they cause, but they're correlated with things like colitis or IBS or varying stages of inflammation that has some sort of name or diagnosis attached to it. So there's lots of different ones. And I think it just, you have to kind of zero in on the body system where you're having the most symptoms and then Mm -hmm. kind of connect the dots from there. Yeah, because I think I had like two separate issues, but they were connected. Like my hormones Mm -hmm. were not balanced, but I also was having all the GI issues and the inflammation in the gut. And so it seemed like the two of them were like working together basically against, you know, what I wanted to be happening. But is that common? Yeah. And and, um, very, very common. And I think what happens a lot is you know, women are like, I just want to lose the weight. I just want to fix my hormones. I just want my skin to be better. And I get it, but the hormones are not going to cooperate if the gut is not functioning. Because again, it's that central hub of communication and your food and everything that you're putting into your body is information that's going to those hormones. So if there's like a disconnect and they're not talking to each other, then there's no, you know, we can't really fix anything and the hormones aren't going to cooperate with us because they're not getting that like communication from the gut. Right. So sometimes doing the work is the shortcut and you can't, you know, you can't circumvent working on the gut just to lose weight um, or just to fix the hormones. Okay. And I know I've seen you post about a detox that you do for this. Can you run us through what that entails? Yeah. So, um, so the detox or sometimes we call it a reset program Mm because I feel like detox or cleanse has like this horrible negative connotation around Mm -hmm. it because there's been some abuse of those words. But, um, honestly, you know, just to be transparent, I had a lot of people asking me like, what can I do? Like, I just want like a program. Like they wanted to have like a box that they could take home and be like, this is what I'm doing, you know, and just have like this tangible solution. And before that, you know, I was just doing like meal plans and supplements and kind of piecemealing everything together. Mm -hmm. But you know, January, right before pool season, you know, we're getting these certain points of the year where people were just asking like in large numbers and I couldn't like satisfy everybody. So I worked with my, um, with Sandy, who's my other, my weight loss expert dietitian that works with me and my, uh, vendors and, and that I worked with my supplement vendors. And uh, like the past few years we've used uh, biotics research. They have a really mm-hmm. great product and we just kind of developed what we felt like was a safe, the safest alternative we could come up with to extreme dieting or like extreme cleanses, right? Okay. So it nourishes the body. We designed the meal plan specifically so that it actually feeds you. It's not like calorie restriction. It's not, it's just calming inflammation. It's taking out just the top allergens um, without spending hundreds of dollars on testing. It's just taking out the most common things like gluten, dairy, corn, soy, canola. Like okay. if, you know, if you were just going to guess, most of those aren't helping most people. Right. Especially if you have gut hormone, weight, inflammation, you know, a host of, of symptoms. Okay. So we designed the menu around that, but it's plenty of food. It's like feeding people. Mm-hmm. And then we just use some really basic supplements to help support like proper elimination and detoxification, not to replace what the body does anyway, but just to help support it to do it a little bit better. Because okay. obviously people who are wanting to lose weight because there's that gut connection, 
there's a reason that things aren't like doing what they're supposed to. And it's usually there's some sort of bottleneck somewhere, even if it's like you can't see it. If you looked inside their body with a microscope, there's probably a bottleneck somewhere of something that's not going where it's supposed to be or doing what it's supposed to do. Yeah. And so we just tried to develop that to help people like improve energy, reduce bloating, maybe drop a few pounds. We really don't even try to advertise it as like weight loss because to us it's more about like let's focus on healing and getting you feeling better right. and then the weight is easier to deal with which you've found yes. as well right so yeah. it's really just focusing on the healing instead of the losing and then it all comes together and so we tried to do that in a safe way so that's kind of just so people don't go at the beginning of January and do some crazy thing that messes up their metabolism yeah. we were trying to do like a metabolically safe and supportive way to or like alternative to that Okay. Yeah. What are some of the supplements that you recommend for something like that? Um, the, the product that we have been using, it includes, um, it has like an antioxidant supplement, which obviously will systemically calm inflammation. Mm -hmm. It has liver and gallbladder support, which is hugely important. If obviously if someone doesn't have a gallbladder, it's really important. But even if they do, sometimes the liver and gallbladder, it just has a lot of jobs. Like the liver processes hormones, it processes fat, it processes toxins. So if we're trying to clear some of that out, we need to make sure that those pathways are open. Yeah. And so um, liver support is hugely important, important, not just from a chemical conversion standpoint, but also from like a mechanical way of just moving things out and making sure the body's producing bile and that helps to like eliminate those toxins through the stool. And then what else is in there? There's another, like, I think there's two liver support. And then there's um, the the shake product that we use with it just to make, like, an easy smoothie, just to make life easy, has just vitamins and minerals to support nutrition and detoxification. Okay. And I think there might be, like, an omega supplement, um, which also helps to reduce inflammation as well. Okay. So say that you have a client like me who comes to you and is really bought in on doing everything that you're telling them to do. What does that look like? And what are they eating? What are they drinking? How are they managing stress? How are they sleeping? What's the workout plan look like? Because I know when I first sat down with you, you're like, okay, we got to stop doing all this. I was like, what? <laughs> no way. And I, I actually was reluctant because I had in my head that yeah. if I backed off from the workouts and backed off from you know, eating clean and kind of managing all this, all these things in my daily life that I was going to have the reverse effect. Mm -hmm. But when I finally actually was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to try this and just see what happens. It works. Yeah. Yeah. Which is crazy. But yeah. Yeah. So it looks a little different for everyone because everyone's lifestyle is a little bit different and like what they're already doing. But in general, we're focusing on eating real food and, um, and I'll, I'll talk about this more too, but just really balancing food and yeah we can do macros if you want but most people really don't want to count and don't want to have to like be obsessively tracking everything that goes in their mouth it's a lot of work yeah so I think just being intuitive about like okay I need you know I need protein I need a healthy fat I need fiber those are kind of the three components that are filling their real food Mm -hmm. um and they nourish the body right and they they fuel us for, for energy, for, um, for exercise. So really just finding now within that, it depends different people, some people who are really, really stressed out and they have like zero hormones, they might need a little higher fat, right? Someone who is, um, 
just on a general kind of weight management, they might do better with high protein. But if they've been doing high protein for 10 years, they're probably not going to do well on high protein. Yeah. So then we have to kind of play with, you know, fats and carbs. But in general, they're eating real food with like, even if it's just an equal balance of everything on their plate every time they eat and just eating enough. That's like the biggest thing with women is just making sure they're eating enough. And my approach, if I could sum it up, is just really fueling activity so that you can build muscle so that you can burn fat. And that is honestly like the key to just, I think, to maintaining like a a reasonable weight and not feeling like you're yo-yoing your whole life, you know, because muscle is hungry. So as long as we're feeding that muscle, but most women are doing too much cardio, not eating enough, not sleeping, really stressed out, you know, and it's just a recipe for really low hormones, which means you're not going to have tone, right? You're just going to be really tired. Um, Your cortisol is going to be a disaster. So you're going to look kind of you're just not going to look toned, you know, without those hormones. So, um, so eating is important, but it's usually more eating enough and working on that with women. When you say eating enough, what does that mean from a, I guess, yeah. like a calorie macro standpoint? Yeah. So we have to do some math to make it work for each person individually, but there's a calculation that you could, anyone could probably Google called your BMR. That's your basal metabolic rate. Now that means a lot of people think like, oh, that's what I, that's like the amount I should be eating. Yeah. But it's really, that's the amount of calories your body needs when you're laying in bed doing nothing. Right. Doing nothing. <laughs> like yeah. not digesting food, not chasing a toddler around. No activity. No activity, no exercise. Um, like I said, even digesting your food takes about a hundred calories a day. So okay. your BMR is just doing nothing. Um, so most people need above and beyond that at least two to 300 calories more. Okay. And then if you're doing activity again, it depends what it is, but you may need even more than that on certain days. So it's really finding what's called your DEE, your daily energy expenditure. It's different than your BMR. And what most women do is eat below their BMR for too long and it overstresses the body. So then your metabolism has to slow down to compensate because it's like something's got to give. Right. And then you have to keep eating less and less and less to maintain, let alone lose. And so for a lot of women, that's what happens is they kind of sabotage or kind of break their metabolism almost. Okay. Um, So yeah, so it's a little different for everyone, but if you take your BMR and then add, you know, a few hundred calories, depending on how active you are, that's usually a good place to start. And then you can kind of adjust from there. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. And then I think, um, you know, sleeping and working out, you know, is just finding that balance. You have to be sleeping. If you're not sleeping, fix that first. Yeah. And if you don't sleep, like, you know, I'll still have occasional nights where I'm like, oh, I didn't really get a very good night's sleep. That's not the day to go do like, you know, break some records and do some crazy like hit workout, you know, <laughs> that's the day you like do yoga, you walk, you just yep. do gentle things because you have to let your body recover. Um, and that's a really big, I think, problem for a lot of us is we get, I mean, I'm the same way. I get fixated on like yeah. this day I have to do this, this day I have to do this. And then if something doesn't go my way, it's like, I don't want to give up that workout, but right. it's really sometimes in your best interest to do that. Okay. Um, so just making sure you have sleep right and we can talk more about that and then working out should just be a balance you know walking is not glamorous but it is great for most people um and lifting weights or some sort of resistance training is great but we don't have to do like and I love running but mm-hmm. we most of us don't need to be running like long distances yeah. long periods of time every day yeah and or doing hit workouts every day for many people that's just gonna be too much on the body Okay. I know. And I want to talk about that too. I want Mm -hmm. to talk about what the high intensity cardio does Mm -hmm. to your cortisol levels and then like the long distance running. Cause I know that's been a topic that I've talked to 
other people in previous podcasts about, but also things that I have kind of been looking into as well, Mm -hmm. because I know it's not the most recommended thing to do to go out and run a marathon regularly or, you know, a ton of mileage. So can you explain how that affects your cortisol levels? Yeah. So when you, um, so cortisol is a stress hormone. It's kind of like adrenaline. So in, you know, a long time ago, if you were surviving, trying to survive and you're being chased by a bear, that's when adrenaline and cortisol kick in and kind of like help your body to quickly get out of that situation. Well, our bodies really haven't evolved beyond that point where if you have financial stress, relationship stress, emotional, psychological, you know, sitting in traffic every day stress, mm-hmm. you know, it, it your body doesn't know the difference between those types of stress. It kind of processes it all pretty similarly yeah. as being chased by a bear. So it's this like in it's this inherent survival instinct. And so that cortisol kicks in and that's okay. It's kind of like inflammation. A little bit is there, like it's there for a reason. It's a protective mechanism and it helps our body cope with stress. And it kind of like mobilizes your, you know, resources, mobilizes energy for quick fuel to like get the heck out of that situation. But if you're living like that every day for years or even sometimes months at a time, if it was something really serious, like you moved or, you know, you lost a family member or a, you know, a child, like it just depends how intense the trauma is, Mm -hmm. but over time, so it's different for everyone, but over time that cortisol, it can't keep up with that pace anymore. It can't keep just putting out, it can't make it out of nothing. And so eventually you kind of crash. And so exercise is another stressor. So if you are like, you know, you don't have kids, you have a pretty like low stress job, you know, finances are good, like everything's fine. And then you run, you're probably fine. And like most of us, when we're younger and like, especially pre kids, that might be our life where we're just like, okay, running is like my one stress that I have, you know? Yeah. But then when you have like, you know, a family and a house and utilities or like you come home and your air conditioning's broken (laughs) or like all these unknown things, you know, unexpected things, um, you know, that's when life gets real and you have to adjust a little bit because, just pushing that cortisol limit all the time every day is maybe not going to be um, the best. So cortisol is there, but it's it's like a short-term stress fix. And if we're in that fight or flight phase for too long, it's eventually going to sabotage our bodies. And low cortisol is very is much harder to come back from than like high cortisol, which is you know okay. what you get initially from that like acute phase of stress. Yeah. So that's where running can be. You know, if you're running, if you're jogging like a couple miles a day, probably fine if you're Mm -hmm. an an average healthy person. But for someone who's like really depleted or if you started running, you know, two months postpartum and and you have a full time career and you're like running your family and you have a million things on your plate, you might quickly hit that burnout phase, you know, more so than somebody else. And then that's when it becomes really difficult to lose weight. Yeah. And that's usually when we're like, oh, <laughs> yeah, what's happening? You know, but sometimes it's not till we're at that point where right. we realize we need to like backtrack a little bit. Right. It's so interesting. I used to love doing HIT mm-hmm. workouts and I also used to love doing cardio. I think when I yeah. first came to see you, I was doing like 45 to 50 minutes of cardio a day, which now yeah. seems crazy to me. Now I only do 20 minutes a day yeah. and I still do a HIT workout once a week. Yeah. Um, but I was doing them, I mean, probably three, four times a week then. And I notice now if I go to a berries class and I I still love berries, that's what I do once a week, but 
Um, I've heard when really the, good things. Yeah, when the music gets really, really loud. Uh-huh. So when they start a sprint on the treadmill and the music gets really loud, I can feel my cortisol level yeah. like rising <laughs> and just I feel like the adrenaline starts yeah. pumping. And now I, I know so much more than I knew then. Yeah. And so I know immediately like, okay, right. like this is causing my <laughs> adrenaline to spike, which is, you know, right. I'm running faster on the treadmill. And yeah. um, I feel like I don't... I don't love doing that more than once a week yeah. because I know how it affects my body. And yeah, so a lot absolutely. of a lot of people have told me I'm very in tune with my body, but I've also spent a lot of time trying to figure it exactly. out. Exactly. And once you figure it out, you're like, I don't ever want to do the wrong things again exactly. because it doesn't lead down a path that's desirable. Yeah. So And sometimes being in tune with your body is like out of tune with our culture. And yeah. that's what's hard. I think that's where the disconnect is. It's like I have so many people who are like, well, what do I do about this like membership I have for right. this boot camp? And I'm like, I mean, I can write you a note or you can yeah. just try to modify. But like, yeah. I'm not good at modifying. I'm I'm a person, if I go to a class, yes. I'm going to do what they tell me yes. to do. Yeah, because you don't want to be the one person that's walking right. when everyone else is running at 13 on the treadmill, you exactly. know? So it's hard. And so sometimes you just have to do what's best for you and not worry about that. But some people are better at that than others. So Agreed. Yeah, but that's so that's great if you're in tune with your body. I think sometimes more of us are we just don't want to listen right yes so it's good you're listening yes well thanks to you I I learned a lot from that oh well good um and then I think post-pregnancy too my hormones also kind of just leveled out to being normal again Mm -hmm. which was really nice and I I was like wow I actually feel super level and everything um so I think that helped too but even prior to getting pregnant with Liam my OB had initially told me like where your hormones are at right now, you're not going to be able to, to get pregnant. And then we went through the supplement regimen and I did that, I think for four or so months yeah. and then I got pregnant right after. So I know that it wow. worked. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I don't think I remember that part of your story. That's yeah. Cool. Well, when I came to you, I wasn't planning to get pregnant. Oh, okay. So gotcha. I probably didn't ever gotcha. yeah. um, bring that up, but yeah, yeah, it just ended up happening like that. And that's really cool. Yeah. It is yeah. super cool. That's it's neat. it's nice to see that it all actually works. Mm-hmm. Even though it's counterintuitive in the beginning. Yes, yes absolutely. <laughs> um, so what about for someone who really wants to be healthier and they want to work on themselves from the inside out, but they maybe don't have the means to come see you or someone similar, what are the top two things that you recommend they eliminate or maybe add to their diet? So I think at that point, you just eat on purpose you eat like it's your job without it being stressful (laughs) so eat real food um you know less processed um protein fat fiber every time you eat so we're not Mm -hmm. worrying about carbs we're just talking about fiber so fiber can look like a lot of things it could be whole grains okay um it could be vegetables it could be fruit it can be a whole mix of those it could be beans or you know other lentils something like that so just finding that balance i think and minimizing the other stuff as much as possible and then balancing like lifestyle, you know, yeah. sleep and um, and exercise. I think so many people that come to me are just already so far down the path that they're kind of like, I get it. Like I something took a left turn somewhere, but right. I don't really know how to get out of this. Yeah. But I think if you're ahead of that, um, so I mean, in that case, I think it's worth it to just get the help. And I think most people are surprised when they do come to me that it's literally, it's usually like six months, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's if you have something like active going on. If it's like mild or you just want to lose weight, it could even be less time than that. But I think if you're looking at it from a preventative standpoint, which really would be ideal if we were all working on our health preventatively, I think just focusing on just eating, not, I don't even want to say clean, but just 
eating real food. You know, mm-hmm. you can eat animal products. You can eat plant products. It doesn't have to be all one or the other. It doesn't have to be keto. It doesn't have to be vegan. It can be literally a mix of everything. And I think just kind of seeking that balance. And then if something is off, just doing little like spot tracks just to make sure that you know where you are. Yeah. Um, but that's probably the the best option. And then I think just minimize all the other stuff that's going to get you into trouble. <laughs> like the fun stuff, you know, like alcohol and lots of excess caffeine and um, processed food and added sugar, you know, just minimizing those will obviously keep your body in a less inflamed state as Mm -hmm. well. And then managing stress and sleep and all that fun stuff. Why is caffeine so bad for you? So it's, it's kind of like hit. It's not bad in and of itself um, or like, you know, running. Um, It's just different people metabolize it differently and it spikes your, it, it triggers cortisol production, which is kind of good. Like if I wake up in the morning and I'm going to do some sort of exercise or go to a class and I haven't eaten yet, I still Mm. might have caffeine because it kind of like mobilizes everything, right? And kind of stimulates cortisol because you need a little cortisol to make your body change. Yeah. But it it if you have too much it's going to pretty much wreck your hormones okay um the body just will not be able to produce as much like progesterone it's just like it's almost like you're in that fight or flight state again okay all the time and so then your body's like oh my gosh i'm super stressed i am certainly not focusing on reproduction right now because this person is like super stressed and obviously in an emergency and so those reproductive hormones like progesterone are going to be the first things to go. Okay. So that's just, it's, it, you know, I think if you have a cup of coffee a day, that's fine. I think if you have to have afternoon coffee mm-hmm. or you have to have like, you know, more than two cups on a regular basis or you feel like dirt, yeah, <laughs> then that might be a sign you just need to take a break or that there's okay. just something deeper going on and you're using it as like a crutch rather than just because you enjoy it or because it gives you a little boost, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And I, okay, I know you've mentioned whole foods several times yeah. or real food yeah. several times. Is there a certain preservative or something people should look on um, or look for on labels that is a definite no-no or what exactly does real food mean? Yeah, I would just say like minimally processed food. So okay. like, and I think it starts probably when we're kids, like we're used to, I mean, when my kids ask for a snack, they want something in a package, right? Yeah, like goldfish they're, or yeah, something. And yeah. they're, they're old enough even now, like during summer they can make their own meals, but right. they still will gravitate towards like, what can I find that's in a bag or a box that I don't actually have to like make or do anything mm-hmm. with? And so I think it's that it's that food in our fridge that's like, we don't have food. We just have things to make food. Yeah. <laughs> that's real food though, right? So yeah. I think it's just learning how to combine simple things like, you know, apples and peanut butter or mm-hmm. celery and peanut butter could be a perfectly, a perfectly combined snack. But it's not as easy as like packaged peanut butter pretzels right. or like, you know, a, a cheese on a stick with, you know, with crackers or something like yeah. that. So I think it's just a matter of um, just minimizing processing as much as you can so that the food looks like it would if you, you know, pulled it out of the ground right. or you like went to wherever the source was and got it directly. Um, so, you know, minimizing the things that have um, any preservatives, you know, or added sugar, um, colors, MSG. So the more stuff that's on the label, the worse it probably is. Right. Um, the longer the shelf life it has, the worse it probably is. Yeah. If it has things you can't read on it, it's probably not great. And it doesn't mean we can't have those. It's just realize that's not 
real food and that's not going to nourish your body. It's not giving your body instructions of how to be better and to be balanced and be nourished. Yeah. It's actually harming your body. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. What kind of foods would you recommend for somebody who's trying to reduce inflammation? Are there foods that are specific for that or? Sure. So, um, Plant foods in general are pretty anti-inflammatory, especially anything that's like brightly colored. Okay. So, you know, things like, um, you know, fruits and vegetables. So like berries are very good, Mm -hmm. um, leafy greens, you know, things like pomegranate, things that have that like really intense color. Yep. Um, Even like bell peppers or just anything that looks really colorful is typically going to have special compounds in it that will help fight inflammation. Okay. So brightly colored plant foods are always good to incorporate, whether it's fruit, vegetables, um, you know, as much as you can, whether it's juice, juiced or whole. Um, oh, any, that's good to know. Yeah, I love that, juice. Yeah. Yeah. Any of that is good. You know, if you can do obviously like fresh pressed juice where it still has, you know, it's not heat treated, yep. that's where it's going to retain more like enzymes, vitamins and minerals. Okay. Um, obviously not like, you know, bottled pasteurized sat on the refrigerator shelf or, or on the grocery right. store shelf for three months juice. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that has its, its place, I think in, um, in what we, what we eat. And then, um, you know, things that are, um, high in anti-inflammatory fats, Mm -hmm. which are really hard to find in snack form. So again, it goes back to eating like, you know, meals with minimally processed food. Um, but things like, you know, salmon, like, uh, I love smoked salmon, Mm -hmm. especially on like just a thin slice of toast as a Mm -hmm. snack. Um, I've heard that that's really great. And avocados too, right? Avocado chia hemp flax seeds okay um any way you can get extra omega-3s in is always a win because most of us and this comes up all the time when i run micronutrient panels even on my kids because again my kids will still try to trend toward they eat pretty darn good but like they'll still try to sneak in those snacks and sometimes some years when i run it on myself or on them the omega-3 to omega-6 fat ratio mm-hmm. it's like the anti-inflammatory versus the pro-inflammatory fats okay are off so like omega-3 fats are good omega-6 fats in too much excess yes are bad yes okay yeah you need omega-6s but if you most people are low in omega-3s yep and those are specifically anti-inflammatory and so most americans really struggle to get enough of those in. And I mean, all you have to do is look at like what the average person eats in a day. Even if you get a salad from a restaurant, Mm -hmm. what kind of dressing is in it? It's probably soybean oil or canola oil, which is not good. I know. Um, It's going to eventually be inflammatory because if you're not balancing it out, instead of like avocado oil, olive oil, if you made it at home, Mm -hmm. um, if you, you know, are eating any type of cracker or chip, probably not going to have good oils in it unless you look for that. And there are brands out there that are a little more focused and you can find like olive oil potato chips, avocado oil potato chips, Mm -hmm. um, crackers made with um, uh, similar, like avocado or olive oil. Those are kind of your big ones. Are the um, Siete brand chips, those are good? Mm -hmm. Those are good. Those have coconut or avocado oil usually. Yeah. Um, So you, but you really, I mean, that's one brand. Like it's, they're hard to find. They're not accessible. They're expensive. So staying away from those packaged snack foods, unless it's like your purposely wanting a treat or something Mm -hmm. like to replace something that you've missed having um you know it's just easier on the budget and still and still keeps you healthy but I think that's a great way that people don't think they don't think about fat as being anti-inflammatory yeah but really if we're seeking out like throw some chia in this throw some hemp seeds I mean those are that's a really cheap easy way to like add omega-3s 
um, and and support um, reducing inflammation. That's a great tip. I can you test the difference between your omega threes and your yeah. omega sixes? I yeah. really want to do that. I feel yeah. like I pay attention to labels a lot. Yeah. So I'd like to think, and I I do pay attention to healthy omega three fats. Yeah. But I I'd like to think that I have a good balance. But yeah. then you never know. Really, yeah. I feel like there's also if a lot I'm of paying attention things. to it, I'm mine are good. Yeah. When I I usually run a full panel on myself like once a year, once a year, okay. year and a half. And they're good, but there are times where even some brands that are like, I would tell you are pretty healthy, like they're better than the alternative. Right. They still don't always have good oils. Like sunflower oil is okay, but it's, if you're eating it like a lot, it can still raise that omega-6 level. And so if you're not getting in tons of extra omega-3s to balance it out, it can still tip the scales. So that's happened to me personally before. Taking fish oil can also be a kind of a shortcut if you don't like fish or you don't eat enough. I mean, I probably don't even eat enough fish a week. I only eat it probably once or twice a week. How many Um, times should you be eating it? Like three to four times. If you really want to rely on food. And that's what, you know, I think some people are like, well, aren't you going to talk about, you know, how can't we get all this from food? Well, you can. It's just challenging for the average person with a modern life. Right. So most people aren't eating fish three to four times a week. I know I'm not. Yeah. And if I'm not, I'm sure the average person isn't. Um, So fish oil in a supplement can also be a good way. But I try to encourage people like... You know that's an, that's also expensive. So it if is. we're really keeping budget in mind and variety of food in mind, you know hemp chia flax those are super easy cheap ways to like because you can add it into so Anything. many different things. Yeah, and it um, even just a tablespoon will give okay. you a decent amount. So good to know. Do you have a fish oil brand that you like to recommend? Um, I there's a few out there that are decent. I use Full Script a lot, which is where I order supplements from. So. I tend to just kind of go there for what they have. So Mm -hmm. like Carlson is pretty good. Nordic Naturals is good. I tend to use Nordic Naturals because they have, I like their combinations and I have this weird like kind of (laughs) efficiency thing where I don't want people to be on like a million things. So I try to combine and streamline a supplement regimen as much as I can. And Nordic will have, they have like a fish oil with D or a fish oil with CoQ10 or a fish oil with like, blood sugar support. So I try to compile it just like their formulas because you can be really efficient yeah. and keep people on fewer Yeah, no things, one wants but, to take 10 right. pills a day. Right, yeah. exactly. You're, so. I feel like you're less likely to take, that yeah. to take that many. Right, exactly. Yeah. So there's some other good brands, but those are my two go-tos just because they're easily accessible. Um, I mean, Biotics Research is good. Zymogen's good. But I tend to go for the combined formulas. So Nordic okay. is usually my go-to. Okay. Yeah. What supplements just for the everyday person do you think everybody should be taking? So, I mean, again, this is where people are like, I just want to get everything through food. And I'm like, I totally hear you. And I yeah. wish more than anything as a nutritionist that I could sit here and say, like, you absolutely we could all can. Do that. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I think you can, but just eating becomes your job, literally. Yeah. And it just takes a lot of mental energy in our modern society sometimes. So I would say, um, you know, a multi can be helpful. There, okay. there are going to be some people who are like, absolutely not. Nobody needs a multi. Yeah. I get it. Many people do not. But, and, and my patient population might be a little skewed. I work with a, a people who are having, who have active health issues, right? right. They're not coming in healthy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, or they have a lot of inflammation, they have autoimmune disease, they have a GI condition like IBS or IBD. 
um, or celiac, they're already coming in depleted. Mm -hmm. And so usually a multi is a great way to bridge the gap so they don't feel overwhelmed with trying to get everything through food. And we don't know their genetics. We don't, we have all these unanswered questions. So I tend to lean on like, this is kind of your insurance. It's not going to hurt anything. It's not, I'm not giving you huge amounts of things. It's not, it doesn't even have to be super expensive. Right. Just even like a high quality, you know, one one capsule a day type of support. But what I'm picky about with multivitamins is, and why you may not be able to find it at like a drugstore or a grocery store is there is, um, different levels of quality of B vitamins. And so like folate, you might've even heard during pregnancy, like, Oh, take folic acid. Well, folic acid is actually synthetic. So folate is what we get from food. And so we want a supplement that more mimics what we get from food. Okay. So even when I did my master's, they told us like, Oh, folic acid is better than folate. And it's not really. So, um, we've learned that now the hard way. So, um, so like a methyl folate, something should say methyl folate or, folinate is okay and then b12 a lot of people don't process cyanocobalamin very well which is the cheapest form of b12 that's going to be in most supplements even like energy drinks and stuff like that will have cyanocobalamin so you it's better for most people to get methylcobalamin because most people can it's the active form of that b vitamin so your body doesn't have to convert it so for many people that's going to be a much it's going to be a much better option. So you want to make sure it's a good quality multivitamin, but it doesn't have to be super expensive or like a million capsules a day, as long as you don't have a ton of stuff going on. Good to know. And then I feel like there's so many different B vitamin options. There's like B12, B6, B complex. So I, I feel like I'm always on the vitamin aisle and yeah. I'm so confused at which one I'm supposed if to get. If you just take a multi, it'll cover all of them. Okay. Good yeah. to know. If you needed extra for some reason, then you could do that. But the, a B complex is in a multi. So you mm-hmm. really don't need both. So okay. if you just take a multi, it'll have all of that. And it should have like some minerals and things like that. What you usually don't get a lot of in a multi is vitamin D. There's a couple brands out there that I use that have like 2000 I use, which for mm-hmm. the average person may be enough for maintenance, but not if you're deficient. So sometimes I'll throw in vitamin D um, as an extra, but you want to make sure and stay on top of testing. So you're not taking something you don't need or taking yeah. too much. And then I like fish oil as like a basic regimen and then sometimes a probiotic. But I really don't think people need to take a probiotic every single day. Yep. I really think for the most part, maybe a couple times a week. And then if you eat fermented foods, maybe not at all, you know, for okay. maintenance. Obviously, yeah. if you have issues going on, there could be therapeutic reasons for it. But um, but those are kind of my three to four go-to things for like a very basic maintenance regimen is like multi-fish oil, maybe D, maybe a probiotic. Good to know. Mm-hmm. Why do you think, I feel like recently there's been so much talk around vitamin D being so much better for you than vitamin C and vitamin mm. C in terms of sickness really not doing nearly as much as people originally thought mm. it's doing. Why is vitamin D so much better? I don't know that it's better. It just it just works differently, but okay. it is fat soluble, so it can like hang around the body a little longer. We can store it in the liver. Maybe the angle of someone that was saying that is because we know that every uh, organ in the body has receptors for vitamin D, meaning mm-hmm. they need vitamin D. So that's like pretty amazing. Like there yeah. isn't there aren't a lot of areas in the body where we can say, or a lot of vitamins where we can say every single cell and every single organ uses vitamin D, like we can say about vitamin D, if that right. makes sense. So um, so that's a good, that, that may be why they were saying that, because it's just so useful for so many different things. 
Um, and it's easy to detect, it's cheap to test, it's cheap to supplement. And there's so much good research on how well it, you know, it supports our immunity. Mm-hmm. Even in the studies that have been done the last two years since COVID, they, um, there's just so many great studies on vitamin D that yeah. just that alone prevented deaths, prevented severity, like reduced That's severity, crazy. reduced frequency, and they weren't taking vitamin C or zinc or anything else. Yeah. So I think it's not that it's better, but I think there's just such good research around all the things that it does and all the different ways that it works that I think if you're going to pick one, yeah, make sure your D is solid. And when I say that, I would say the traditional range you'll get is 30 to 100, which is a very broad range. Yes. Um, from a nutritional perspective, I like around 50 to 60. If you have a compromised immune system in any way or are dealing with issues, there is literature to support a level of like 60 to 80. If you're okay. like in the autoimmune or have some other things going on or you're like high risk for any yeah. reason, might be like 60 to 80. Like I like for mine, I have Hashimoto's. I like to stay closer to 60 to 80. Okay. Um, but for the average person, like, you know, 45 to 55 or 50 to 60 is probably fine. But okay. 30 is really an outdated in my opinion, outdated reference point, like that's, it's okay. It's better than 20 or 10, but it's not really, it may not be enough to support the immune system. Okay. Like if it was 45 or 50. Good to know. I need to look and see what on the back of mine, what mine is just because I feel like we've been sick so often since December that I should probably check and see what mine is. And I could probably benefit from the higher end of the spectrum at this point. Yeah, maybe. So, so what I was talking about was your blood level as far as what amount to take is really going to depend. So the average person, I've heard a lot of different things, right? There, I would say from the top two people I listen to that are physicians and scientists that, that have done years of vitamin D research, mm-hmm. the average adult is going to use, like literally utilize in their body, probably two to 3,000, probably closer to 3,000 IUs of vitamin D okay. a day. Okay. So that's what the average person, now like I need five easily 5,000 I use every day to maintain my level. If I, if I start taking two, it'll literally drop in three months. That's wild. Yeah. It's, I I mean, I'm technically, I'm still, I'm kind of on the back end, but I, my Hashimoto's flared like a couple months ago and I was like, what in the heck? Like my antibodies were like sky high and I was like, what am I doing? And I checked my vitamin D and it was like 32. Oh, wow. And so I was like, oh, yeah. yeah. And it's normally like 50 to 80. Yeah. <laughs> normally closer to the 80 mark. And so I just, I didn't really realize I had stopped taking my extra D and I was taking a multi with D and I was taking a fish oil with D, mm-hmm. but it just wasn't enough for me. So everyone's a little bit different. And if you have autoimmune, you're probably going to need a little more. Yeah. So. Oh my gosh. You're making me want to come back in and run a lot. <laughs> I'm just so curious where I'm at. I haven't done yeah. it since. In, in yeah. Well, what, even four if you years, get like a but... well check, just yeah. ask for your D and just okay. see where you are. Good yeah. to know. Yeah. What are some common misconceptions you see with people that come into you? Um. Oh, this is good. <laughs> I would say the top two are... The first one, because I do a lot of GI work, Mm -hmm. is that um, food restrictions or dietary changes will fix their gut issues. Okay. Now, that's a big statement. And I I don't want to say food isn't important because, of course, it's important. Yeah. It's hugely important. But it's not going to fix anything if you're already having, like, a pretty significant problem. Okay. 
usually you're going to need some other sort of intervention. In my world, it becomes supplements. Mm -hmm. It's not forever. It's not a million things. I don't put you on 25 things like some people do, but (laughs) um, I don't like that because I don't, I've done it. I don't think that's practical. No. But to get a little help to get over the hump, I think is just more practical and you start to feel better sooner. And then food is like an adjunct to that. Food is also a great preventative. It's just, we, you know, food doesn't have alone it's hard it's hard to get well like i've had it doesn't have like the healing properties yeah like it it does does, but it's just when you're still stressed and you're still doing your normal thing and you're still trying to drink alcohol and have sugar and have like a normal life it's just hard it's just not always enough and i have so many clients that would come in like well i think i have like a yeast overgrowth in my gut or i think i have like you know or i have had ibs forever Mm -hmm. it's for those people like food isn't always enough it's an important component but it's not the singular thing that's causing their problem and taking something out of their diet isn't going to heal the gut yeah once the gut's healed ironically then a lot of times the food sensitivities go away it's kind of like when you're in a bad mood and like as nice as your husband can be to you, there's just nothing he's going to do right. that's going to cheer you up. <laughs> right. It's kind of like your gut can get in that point too. Yeah. And it doesn't matter all the good foods you feed it. It's like, I don't want that. I'm irritated. Leave me alone. And then once you fix it and heal it, then it's like, okay, I'll accept these, you know, this dairy or this, you know, yeah. these avocados or whatever. So um, that's the, definitely the number one misconception. Okay. The other one I get probably more on the weight and hormone side, which you probably could guess is eating less and working out more is like the key to losing weight. And, <laughs> yeah. I feel I like mean, everybody <laughs> thinks that way. Yeah. And it, and it can't, I mean, there is science to it. There's science behind calories in calories out. But when, as we get older and have more stress and have had babies and our bodies change, it uh, that changes and it's just sometimes not enough and we just take the hormone piece for granted until we're older and have to like deal with it a little more intentionally yeah what about i know we we touched on sleep a little bit what are some tangible tips for sleep and why is it so important yeah so i feel like my sleep is all over the place like sometimes it's fantastic and other times i have these weird spells where i feel like i think part of it is having a toddler and just sleeping with a monitor on and waiting for the shoe to drop and for him to to wake up but i i'll go through these spells where i sleep great for an entire week and then the following week i don't know if it's hormone related or what but i sleep so lightly that i hear everything that's going on and i just Mm. don't feel rested when i get up but i know sleep is i mean I can, out of all my friends, I feel like everybody struggles with sleep in a different capacity. Yeah, yeah. Sleep is sleep is tough, and I mean, I still, you know, have days where I can say my sleep isn't, you know, the best. Yeah. Um. So we know that it's very important for like cognition and brain f- function, also like physical energy and hormones, and of course, weight management. Mm-hmm. So like I was saying earlier, if you don't have a good night's sleep, skip the hit workout and do yeah. something more like you know nourishing and like low low intensity. Um you know, supplements can help bridge the gap as well, but it's really just usually hormones and like lifestyle type of stuff. Yeah. So those are the harder things to work on because they require a little bit more long-term focus and a little bit more like work on our part Mm -hmm. as opposed to obviously just taking a pill, but it's, they're the most important for long-term. So usually for me, when my sleep gets off, it's one of those lifestyle things that I've kind of neglected. So that could be you know, have a routine, try to go to sleep around the same time every night. Um, just like you would for a kid, right? You don't, if you put your kid to bed at seven or 10 or like whenever, I mean, they would be horrible sleepers. They wouldn't know what to expect. We're really not that much different, even though we want to think we are. Yeah. Um, you know, ideally try to go to bed by 10 o'clock, 
Um, most people's circadian rhythm, not everyone, there's like a small population of people who literally don't need as much sleep or can sleep less or a, a shorter period during that time. But most people's rhythm is like 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. ish. Mm-hmm. So trying to get to that. So if you're at like going to bed at like 1 a.m., obviously don't try to overnight go to bed at 10 but like just like you would with a kid or like with yeah. daylight savings you know you go 15 Back minute increments yeah. every day for a few weeks until you get back to that 10 10 p.m mark um this isn't i don't have like super scientific data to back this up but i've heard several um you know practitioners that i respect say that um there is research that if you the any sleep you get before midnight is like double the sleep because it's that restorative. Okay. So wow. just yeah, going That's to bed before midnight is a big is a big deal. And yeah. if you can get it closer to like 10, 10 30, even go up at 9 30, that usually is is better for the body and is more restorative. Um use have a routine, right? So whether it's taking a bath, you have essential oils, either like diffused or spray them on your pillow. Tea is a great like nighttime routine. I mm-hmm. like that more in the winter, but that's a lot of times my nighttime routine. Um, chamomile is great, like chamomile tea or something calming. Mm-hmm. Um, read a book, get off the screen. Um, yeah, that's you a know, big which one. most people, yeah, there, I saw a super funny meme. It was like uh, Sleeping Beauty, and she's <laughs> laying on the bed with a phone like this, like with her eyes like bugged <laughs> out. And it's like, me, I want to go to sleep. And then also me, like scrolling through <laughs> yep. social media. Yep, everybody ever. <laughs> everybody. Yep. So if you're going to do that, you can try, you know, I don't want to take anything away from anyone. So if that's like your joy, get at least get blue light glasses and hopefully that helps but if it doesn't and you're still not able to sleep well then consider shutting it off 30 to 60 minutes before you know bedtime yeah that makes sense what what about people who like so i go to bed at between 10 and 10 30 but what about people who sleep great up until a certain point maybe like 2 3 a.m and Mm -hmm. then they wake up and can't go back to sleep yeah what is the story behind that yeah so that's probably a cortisol issue. Okay. Um, it could be melatonin production, excuse me, <clears throat> but it's probably a cortisol issue. So it's again, lifestyle. It's all about balancing your entire rhythm, mm-hmm. but that's where at least in the beginning supplements can be helpful because okay. it's a process to yeah. reset your whole circadian rhythm and your cortisol and you know, your, your cortisol through the day, which you can test in saliva or urine is the most accurate it should be like a gentle roller coaster. Mm-hmm. You kind of wake up in the morning. It's kind of our natural alarm clock. It peaks sometime mid-morning to noon, which is when most people tend to feel most productive. Mm-hmm. And then it gradually kind of scales down and should be at its lowest point at midnight. Mm-hmm. Well, any point in the day can be low or high or get messed up if we're overstressed, right, for too long, like mm-hmm. I mentioned. And then overnight, it could even go high. So a lot of times people think, oh, I just wake up to go to the bathroom. Well, maybe it's your cortisol waking you up and then you think like, oh, maybe I should go yeah. to the bathroom while I'm awake. Yeah. So it's usually cortisol. So that's where okay. supplements like um, there's a, a, a lot of different things like passion flower, um, L-theanine, relora, um, uh, what else? Magnolia. There's a, a lot of different um, ingredients that can help um, suppress high nighttime cortisol. And so that can help okay. and that it kind of like pushes the cortisol over mm-hmm. to the morning. So it kind of helps to like reset the body and remind it like, no, 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 we don't need that cortisol right now right. in the middle of the night. Um, we need it in the morning so we can wake up and feel good. Right. So it, that can help, but you really still have to work on the lifestyle stuff, like managing stress, getting a nighttime routine sometimes even, and this is really hard and I get that it's not going to work for most people, for everyone, but 
you know, working out in the morning can sometimes be way better for getting a, a yeah. dis, an imbalanced cortisol rhythm back to a better balance because that's more natural is that your cortisol is going to be higher in the morning, which exercise is going to stimulate more, Mm -hmm. um, rather at night. So I know for me, like I cannot work out at night because I won't sleep. I I can feel like my cortisol is like elevated. Same. I'm wired if I work out at night. Yeah. Yeah. So I know that's hard because some people are like, well, I work and I have to get up early and I get it. Right. But even if you can do it like at your lunch break or like at three o'clock in the afternoon, that would still be better than like at seven o'clock at night or eight o'clock at night. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, what would be the most common food sensitivities that you see? Would you say gluten? Yeah, absolutely yeah. gluten. I mean, and not, you know, I, I really don't want to be the person that says, like, nobody should eat gluten. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, there's just something in me. Like, I refuse to be like, you know, no one should have gluten. I just yeah. don't want to do that. But I will say it's... It, it's such a common irritant, especially when people are already feeling crummy. Yeah. That it's, it, I, I know it's not easy to remove, but it's such a simple, obvious thing to remove. Right. And it does make a difference. And here's why. It's not always the gluten. Sometimes it's the fat, it's the wheat plant itself mm-hmm. is, um, has this really high fermentable fiber. So for someone who has like IBS or is prone to bloating, um, that could not be your friend for a, for a while. Um, so it could be the wheat itself. It could be the gluten because we know that gluten, which is, of course, in our modern American wheat, is much higher concentrated than it's ever been. And yeah. that it isn't even in some other countries. And that could... Um, you know, it, it so gluten can irritate that really delicate mu- like mucus lining of the intestines. So it could be gluten, but it could also be wheat. And then it could also be glyphosate, which is kind of weird. But I've realized over the years with doing a lot of testing, um, especially in my pediatric clients, that um, they were just sensitive to, I mean, who wouldn't be sensitive to yeah. like pesticides and, um, and uh, glyphosate is actually a, a weed killer. Um, but if oh you gosh. go, yeah, if you go look at concentrations, they like the, the, um, EWG, the environmental working group, they run testing on like, you know, really big name granola bars and cereal and all yeah. these products that have grains. And they, a lot of them have glyphosate levels that are above the EPA allowed limit. Oh wow! And I don't know how they get away with it, but yeah. for now that's, so if you're, if you, if you're going to eat wheat, you know, make it at home, eat organic, do as much of those things as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, because it could be any three of those that's right. really causing the problem. So, but it's interesting when you remove it, that then all three of those potential issues go away as well. So I yeah. think that's why we see such a big change in it. And then dairy, I would say would be the other one, just because I deal with a lot of autoimmune and GI yep. and there's multiple reasons why dairy can be, you know, challenging for that population yeah. of people. And I feel like with dairy, there's so many great substitute options yeah. now that that's an easier one to yeah. eliminate. I yeah. mean, I don't know necessarily that I have a true dairy allergy, but yeah. I've eliminated as much dairy out of mm-hmm. my diet that I can, but then I'm also the person who loves a charcuterie board, yeah, but yeah. that's like once in a blue moon, right. 90% of the time I do oat milk and yeah. coffee yeah. and we don't really eat. I do coconut milk based yogurt. Mm-hmm. So, and they all taste great. Yeah. It's easy to eat because yeah. it doesn't taste bad. I mean, they've made them taste really good. And yeah. it, I honestly don't know a bit, notice a big difference between the yeah. dairy and non-dairy options these yeah. days. I think the hardest one is just cheese. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. So why, I, still why I love yeah. a charcuterie board. Yeah, but, right, yeah. right. Yeah. So I just, I tell, you know, my clients, I'm like, just work it in where you can. But like yeah. most of us don't, if you don't need it every day, 
but you can have pizza once a week or every couple weeks, then like, great. If that, yeah. great. I mean, that's what kind of what I do. And for me, that's good. Like I right. don't feel restricted. I don't feel like, yeah. oh, poor me. I can't have any of this. Um, I had a charcuterie board last night, you yeah. know, with my, when my family came over. Um, I've also noticed that goat and sheep cheese. So we do a lot of like manchego, sheep feta. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so much more, it's so much more easily digestible than I cow. I would agree. Yes. So just the, the fat globules are smaller. So it's like physically and mechanically easier to break down. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to be an all or nothing. And so I think that's where, especially when I work with my autoimmune and digestive, I'm like, I don't want to take anything away from you. Yeah. But like objectively, let's just try taking this out. And then when you put it back in, just make it count and put it back in where you really want it. And usually we can find a happy medium. And if the gut is healthy, you can tolerate some amount of those things. It's just probably for the average person, it may not be helping you reach goals every day, all day in every form. Yeah. That's, that's a really good tip. I actually do really well with goat cheese for Mm -hmm. some reason. I make it in an omelet with egg whites and spinach and it's delicious and it doesn't bother me at all. But to your point, uh, cheese from cow's milk, like even though I love the charcuterie board, it does cause me to bloat. So there's some type of intolerance there or sensitivity or something. But yeah, 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 that's pretty common. Yeah. This was such a good conversation. I learned so much. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, where can everyone find you? So, uh, my website is carolinafunctionalnutrition.com, my Instagram handle, carolinafunctionalnutrition, and I'm on Facebook, and I will soon be on TikTok. I am a little bit slow to the to the race, but I will <laughs> soon be up there as well with the same handle. <laughs> Love that. I'll have to look for you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. We'll have to do this again sometime. Yeah, thanks for having me.